Let's pray and let's go. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, we've been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 1 Peter 1, 3. Almighty and everlasting God, who through the death and resurrection of your Son has proclaimed to us the gospel of peace, grant that by the power of his resurrection we may be born anew to a living hope and so overcome the world. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thanks for coming back. I know it's difficult to get cooking again once you've been interrupted. You know, help your friends come back. Uh, it's very nice to see you here. It's a, you know, it's a difficulty of the schedule when we, we sort of blow it out for the feast days. There's just not time to, to stick together. And I know that when we don't stick together, uh, it's, it's harder for you to come back. But thanks very much for showing the discipline of that. Does anybody, there should be a new sheet in your hands that says the fourth word. Anybody need that? Young Waterman is the guy who could help you with that. Anybody else? Raise your hand. Really, if you need a sheet, raise your hand. We got him. We got him. We got him. Somewhere. Could you hand him out for me? Thanks. Raise your hand if you need one. I'll give you one. Let me say a couple of things uh, as we move toward that. I want to I comment on two things. It's been a busy week around the world and in the church. Um, let me say a word or two about the Shiva thing and a word or two about the Pope. Uh, and I'll take any questions you've got about either of these. I will say, um, you know, we sort of all knew that this young woman was going to die. But I will say I had uh, a rush of shame at the point when I, when I heard it. And, and that's rare. I, I don't usually react to news in that way. But I did, I, I felt shame uh, as a culture, you know, as a people. I think that we have... Uh, become so self-interested, we cannot, uh, we, we are desperately poor at, at, at caring for the needs of others. And I, I, let me say this to you. Um, you know, I've been around these things a bit, and many of you have as well, and they're always extremely difficult. And of course, for Christians, you know, we, we fall back on the defense uh, of, of resurrection, and of course we do that. But we also, and that's true, that's proper, but all things in their time, friends. Uh, it's very difficult. Um, it's very difficult uh, to proceed with our interests ahead of others. And even if the church remains uh, the single voice to hold up, you know, the last, the little, the least, the lost, and the dying, the church needs to remain that voice. In saying that, I don't diminish the difficulty of these things. Um, but I think the baseline question for all things like this, and it's, it is the baseline that I try to work with as a pastor, and I try to get the, uh, the rest of the, the pastors here to work with this as well, and it's one thing that we have full agreement on, is that we do distinguish between nourishing life and prolonging death. Now that's a broad, you know, sort of broad gauge for how to proceed. But in each situation like this, the question is, does, does one nourish life or prolong death? As Christians, you know, we don't see, uh, we understand that, that, that medically we're very sophisticated and um, we can prolong a person's death often for quite a long time. Uh, that is a thing that is not necessarily to be engaged. Uh, and, and when, you know, all the things that we can do are just the things that we're doing uh, to, to sort of push death back a day or two. Um, 
we, we, we as Christians can say, well, that's, um, <coughs> you know, the, there's no point in that, or it would be best if we didn't do that. And that's completely within our ken as Christians. But honestly, um, you know, food and water, there's not a one of you who can live without them. And uh, I thought it was fascinating, of course, with the Pope getting a feeding tube just beyond that. Uh, and then the, uh, you know, sometimes the, the Vatican can frustrate you with the, you know, with, 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 with uh, the lack of clarity in statements, but sometimes they just get it bang on right. And the distinction, I think, between ordinary care and extraordinary care was a helpful thing that came out. You know, that debate was then short-circuited this week by the Pope's own death. But, you know, you're going to meet this again. And I think that you as Christians, you know, we spent a whole year two years ago talking about death and resurrection. We spent a whole year at this time talking about that. So, so you know, proceed carefully. Proceed thoughtfully. But proceed in service, for crying out loud, to other people, particularly um, the poor, the weak, <laughs> and the dying. Proceed in service first. Now, you can sort of take any case apart bit by bit, and that's largely what pastoral care is about, the recognition that every case is different and that we proceed carefully in each situation and that each situation is different. We're not afraid of that. That's actually what we do. And your pastors at this point would be there for you to help you do that. But the broad scope, you know, the broad scope of what we try to do is to nourish life, uh, and not uh, simply to prolong death, and that's a decision that needs to be made. So I'll stop there. You know, I don't know, well, we can always spend as much time talking about whatever you want to talk about, and, and I don't necessarily want to talk about the political stuff so much, but if you have a theological question about that, I'd be happy to entertain it. Does anybody want to have a go, or is there anything left over? Yeah, I scared you out of asking. Go ahead, thank you. Here, please. It's all right. I hadn't heard that, and actually, uh, there was a press release from the president of Synod that I just I got to just for a moment this morning that did not seem to make that claim. And I, in fact, myself have a living will. Pretty much everything I have, including my life, has been signed over to my wife. <laughs> Keep an eye on her for me. Uh, you know, it, I, I, don't, I don't. I think. I think. I, I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't know of that, and I. You know, I don't. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of, when you go to a lawyer or when you, when you fill out a living will, they, there's a whole bunch of options. Um, <clears throat> uh, and you, you have things like you make choices about whether you want food and water continued or not. So there, even there you're engaged by saying, in my particular circumstance, what would happen. But per se, um, frankly, I think it's a good idea. And you can't even get a stitch anymore without the, ho the hospital actually really trying to put a press on you to do it because they want clarity as well. And so why, why wait till, uh, you know, why wait till your family is cast into this uh, 
difficulty to try to make decisions. Um, make your clear-headed decisions now, think it through carefully, and tell people in advance. I think that's just being a rational person. I can't imagine that that's the case, but it, you know, of course, you never quite know what other people are writing. And, and uh, so I, I don't think that's the case, but, but you might think it through. Yeah. Well, that's all right. Keep, keep swinging. It'll, it'll work out. It'll, we'll, we'll see what. Yeah, call me. Yeah, call me. Ask for Kirby. Uh, what else? Anybody else? Yes, John. Oh, just a, a question regarding the Pope, um, who, you know, he's done a lot of good things, but I, I, I read, you know, just recently through the small, the small cold uh, documents on the Pat, on the Pope. Yes. And, I mean, this is, a, this is a bad question. But the, no, I, 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 believe me, I have your question formulated I, in my head already in three I, different I, forms. I've actually heard Lutheran pastors tell me that, you know, they have a hard time accepting the idea that the Pope uh, is an honorable Christian. And in reading the small cult, it almost makes it sound like the only honorable Pope would be a Pope that would kind of go and uh, uh, reverse all those um, claims of inerrancy and um, the three major points on, uh, in the small class that, that we have problems with the Pope. Hmm. And, and my thought was, you know, Pope John Paul, he's, he's done a lot of overtures of peace without, uh, you know, to other, to, to other uh, sects of Christianity. But I just wondered if you had any opinion about can a, a Pope today be um, somebody that we can view as a Christian, because I've heard I've heard Lutheran pastors tell me that the, the office is incongruent with that. Well, the paper called yesterday and asked me that exact question: What should I have said? <laughs> well, I, I, I have to go home and look and see if they put in what I said. Actually, yeah. Well, here well, I, here's the thing: I, nobody ever sort of. I don't I don't think anybody said you couldn't have a pope. Uh, you know, things get organized the way they get organized. The the danger point is when the pope gets in the way of Christ. And uh, that's, you know, that simply is what the Reformation was fought over, that the Pope was getting in, in the way of Christ. Um, now, it was fascinating to watch yesterday, and I will compliment the Catholic Church on how well they have used the media for their own purposes. I mean, I, it's gotten to the point where the guy this morning, the CBS anchor, and it was, you know, I'm up early sort of having a cup of coffee at 6, the CBS answer, anchor is saying, they cut to the CBS anchor who says, the Pope has gone to the Lord. And I'm, you know, doing this on the top of the television. Because I can't believe I heard, you know, a CBS anchor actually say that. I mean, they have completely co-opted the media this weekend and gotten the media to, to speak exactly as they speak. It started with passed away, and then it went to passed on, and then it went passed on to heaven. And now this morning it's to be with the Lord. I'm like, great. They, 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 they turned, you know, they turned CBS News into the 800 club, 700 club, you know. It was, it was fantastic. So I, I will say that they've done a good job of putting the name, and, and it's almost like, you know, it's almost like ball players. It's like Muhammad Ali, who used to get Salam Aleikum in before he got anything else in, you know. He, they've sort of done a great job of figuring out how to get everybody to sing their song. And I thought that the most fascinating thing for me yesterday was, you know, they sort of roll the thing across the bottom. And, uh, you know, you're always looking, and, and different people are saying different things at different times. Uh, the most encouraging one that was said was that there was, a, in quotations, that said, um, the Vatican officials say, and then it said, 
in quotations, the Pope had abandoned himself into the hands of Christ. You sort of think, well, that's what I'd like to do. <laughs> no. Uh, so he, he abandoned, and you, and you say to yourself then, well, that such a thing happened, you know, one can only hope for. Now, on the other side, one remembers about the Pope that he was also the one who, um, for example, gave us indulgences again at the year 2000, or that masses were immediately being said, and the, the key was when they said, to spare him of his suffering. And then one would ask about what suffering there might be for somebody who's completely abandoned to Christ. So, you know, well, you, have to, you have to sort of read the, the larger picture. Was he a remarkable guy? He was a remarkable guy. Did he give, a, did, did he, did he give the church a boost? Tremendously, especially considering what's happened in the Catholic Church. Did he, you know, did he take the, the, the name of Jesus Christ widely? He, in fact, did do that. Politically, he had great effect. Uh, and, and he was one who, who really did stand on the side of the weak, the unborn, you know, the impoverished, which is, you know, how Jesus speaks. You know, it's, it's, we're kind of comfortable here in Wheaton, and we often don't, you know, sort of remember that. But it's Jesus who says, you know, you did it to them, you did it to me. Blessed are the poor. That's Jesus talking, not the Pope. Right? You did it to, to the least of these, to me, you've done it. So we, we need to you know, be very careful. And, and, and the thing is, you can say, um, you say the things that are true, no matter who you say it about. But one is, one is careful to recognize, and the Pope, I think, was, was careful to recognize this, too. He never uh, sort of said, well, all, all the differences are ironed out. I'll give you a great example that I just got this week. I was talking to a Lutheran pastor who was, knows a Catholic priest and an Episcopal priest, and they were all engaged in some deal, and they all sort of ended up at a... Uh, had a sort of a joint service, and uh, the Lutheran pastor was happy to go and sit and watch. The Episcopal uh, priest came to the altar, and the Catholic priest was delivering uh, the, the, the sacrament. And, and he comes to the, to the Episcopal priest at the altar. This is a true story. He comes to the Episcopal priest and says, Pastor Smith, welcome back. Welcome home to Rome. Just like that, in front of the whole congregation, and then communes them. And, and, and I have always had in my own practice, you know, um, always that sense that when, uh, whenever a pastor is invited to uh, co-officiate at a wedding, you know, be part of this thing, there's always the sense of, finally you're kind of coming back under our care, which means the capitulation of doctrine in large, in large part. So when, when, you know, when your uh, kids come and ask me to do their wedding with a Catholic priest, I'll politely decline, as I did my own brother's wedding, because there is um, always the sense of uh, you're giving something up. So one must be careful in the days going forward. Can you speak well of him? You should speak well of him. Should you grieve with your Catholic brothers and sisters? You should. Is it difficult? It's horribly difficult. Death always is, and particularly at this time in the church and in the world. But is everything sort of okay? One would be wary of that. I realize I'm speaking the day after. But I spoke to you this way the day after 9-11, too, you remember. I sort of gave you the things to watch out for, and they ended up sort of playing out that way. You know, you're always, you're the same Christian on 9-10 as you are on 9-11 as you are on 9-12. You're the same Christian, you, before, the day before the Pope dies, the day the Pope dies, and the day after the Pope dies. You're the same Christian. That's what it means to be an honest man. So say what you can say, and then don't say more. And primarily, our, our it wasn't as, you know, our, pri our primarily, 
our, our, our beef with the papacy is the diminishment of Christ and his gifts. This, this is not, not the Lord doing it full blast. Anything else? Be kind to your Catholic friends. It's very extremely difficult for them. Be kind to them. Yes, please. Shame is the exact same thing that I've been feeling ever since they decided to quit feeding um, that woman in Florida. Right. Two, two things about that. One is, and I, I try to remember back now, and um, it was the liturgy that saved uh, the, the funeral of Princess Diana. I mean, the, there was so much that was, was absolutely false, uh, in, including the, the, the attempt to make her a saint on the spot. But it was the liturgy that saved the, th saved the day. And the priests were given to pray particular prayers, and those particular prayers were jammed with theology, and that was the only theology that anybody heard the entire day. So when people sort of say, well, we'll make it up our own, or we don't really need the liturgy, or we'll just get by, or don't worry, the Spirit will move me, most times that's a bad bet. You know, put your money on the other side. And so I just want to sort of observe that now farther down the road. When sort of, sort of people are banging against the liturgy, remember that at the death point, it is the thing that, that, that's the most reliable thing. There will be a lot of talk about hope in the next days, and, and you should sort of nod along with that. But you'll also want to ask the question, and you'll want to listen critically about, about who or what is being hoped in. Right? That's the question you'll need to be asked. And then that goes back to John's question, and the answer is all Christ and none of us. And see, this is just the typical justification, sanctification friction that we have with Rome. The Lord gives me every good gift I've got, and... Because of that, I live a particular life. But with every act I sin, and the Lord forgives that and uses it for his good. It's very, that's very different from saying, you know, I'll do a few good works and the Lord will make up the balance and, and, and pray for me so I don't suffer too long um, if I don't make it all the way there the first day. It's a very different way of approaching life. Right. <laughs> 
Now there is a way that pe there, there is a way that you can talk. Kirby said, you know, there's already talk now. Surely he did so many great things. Surely his reward is great. There's a Catholic way to say that and a Lutheran way to say that. The Catholic way to say it is he did the good works and that pushed him all the way, uh, you know, 93% of the way there, and a couple more masses in the next eight days, and boom. Uh, the Lutheran way of saying it is the way it says it in 1 Corinthians, that on the last day, um, you know, everything will be burned away, uh, and then the Lord and everybody in heaven rejoices in what's left, and what's left will be what's forgiven into the service of the Lord. Lutherans don't talk that way much because we, we sort of get to that text and we're too afraid it can go wrong, so we don't say it. We ought to say it, but we ought to say it exactly the way it's said in the text, which is the Lord cares deeply about good works, but as, as, the, as the scripture unfailingly says over and over again, not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In Galatians 2.20, it's the, it's, the, it's the spirit who prompts you to anything good. You, you, you t for, every e for every evil work in your life, take credit. And for every good work in your life, give credit. That's the way it works, you see. So just, just listen carefully in the days ahead. You, you know, we don't, you can't straighten everything out at once. But you sort of nod along in grief. You're, you're thankful for, for the name of Christ being spoken broadly. You listen to words about hope, and then you parse the entire situation, but gently, and as it comes, and, and, and proper to the situation that you're in. It won't do any good just to sort of bang away at the Catholics for the next few weeks. Well, who's that going to help? You try to use the possibilities here for giving a clear witness to Christ. Okay? Anybody else? Yes, please. Uh, oh, yes, Bernice, please. Sorry. Rest. Yes. Thank you very much for that. Um, I don't think people know that you spend your life working in hospice. Um, Bernice is in the new members class right now and, and does this for a living, so has some inside information. That's a thing that would be possible to do here, and I would be happy to do. It is difficult. I, I, I don't exactly know why. Um, I, I don't exactly, I mean, I do and I don't, you know. I mean, I do and I don't. But it's, it's a great idea. Can you sort of remind me on a time when I'm not sort of thinking about 10 things and I'd be happy to do that? Kind of work through it line by line? Yeah, that's a thing we could certainly do. It's a very practical and helpful thing for families. Um, so, thank you. It's well said. Somebody else, Ramona, please. Um, yeah, I'm just going back to the living wills and, and now the Terry Schiavo case and, and feeding priests and stuff. Where, I've always kind of wondered where the church would come in on these lines of the sanctity of life versus, like you said, prolonging death another day. Um, how would they make that judgment? I mean, that case was 15 years. Well, you, in general, you make it case by case. Now, the difficulty, and I think somebody alluded to this, is the information. Uh, I despair of actually having accurate information about almost anything any day I wake up. And so it's very difficult to know who's telling the truth. Uh, you know, really information is propaganda in many ways in our society. 
and, and people, there's, there's hardly an honest scholar left who will. The most honest scholarship uh, does its best to promote, uh, to substantiate, strengthen the views of the other side. So that's honesty, because those things are data, those things are facts. You, you never see that in, in how things are presented to us. So for that particular um, situation, in and out, you know, I suppose we could gather reams full of stuff and try to sort it out, but here's kind of an interesting thing. She lived for almost two weeks without food and water. This sort of suggests to you that maybe things weren't so as, as, as dire as, as, as the suggestion was. You, I mean, you know, I mean, I wouldn't last for two weeks without food and water. I mean, honestly, I'm an old duffer now, and that's, you know, stuff happens. But, but, but uh, I mean, there are things like that where you just sort of start with sort of the baseline obvious, and then you can kind of move through despite what anybody says. Yeah, I think those, those things are all sort of put together. This, I try to, to allude to this about um, the quality, you know, to speak of quality of life is a very uh, difficult way to proceed in these things because, uh, you know, frankly, by, the, by some standards, you know, all of you would be dead based on other people's quality of life. Uh, so just, you just, just be very careful. But scripture sort of helps you through. All right, want to do this? We probably should, otherwise we'll never go. So I apologize to you <coughs> somewhat, you know, quirk of the calendar. I meant for these seven words to be done by Easter time, and you can see how things sort of pop up so we get to four. And, you know, you get the, you know what, what's the grimmest word, perhaps, uh, on, the, on the Sunday after Easter? Well, all is not lost, you know, all is not lost. And it was, you know, it can be, Lent can be extremely heavy, and perhaps heaven known uh, how the story ends will help you out. There was sort of that brilliant little quote by a doctor in the margin over Easter where it said the only antidote for dying is living. Uh, this is brilliant stuff. So, I mean, there, there you go. Um, I sort of ask you, I'm, I'm just going to kind of move you through here. Um, have we really engaged the horrors of our time? I just sort of put that to you. And I list a few, and maybe I didn't list your favorite one, and I'll always get letters now. I'll, I'm sure I'll get a letter tomorrow that I didn't list, you know, something more horrible than the ones I've listed. So let me just say the list is not complete. Uh, you know, I, I sort of derail you in advance. Could Dresden be on here? Sure. You know, name, name what you like. But I want to I wanna ask you the next two questions, which is, and I think this is perhaps my, one of, this is at least on my top five list of most fervent criticisms of American society which is we intentionally deny sin, pain, evil by distracting ourselves. Our world, our society, is a society of distraction, right? So do we intentionally deny these things by distracting ourselves with superficial lives? I'm a yes with capital letters and two exclamation points, okay? I look at the, I look what's put into my kids, I look, you know, I, I watch what's on television, I listen to what people talk about, you know? Believe me, the little, the last, at least the poor and the dead are not on the top of everybody's hit parade, except on weeks like this when you have two huge things. And you know what? By next week at this time, well, two weeks from now, because there'll be nine days of mourning, you know, this will drop off the radar. This is, we're, we're horrible about this. I mean, we live in an evil world and we regularly just look the other way. And that's easiest for us, who are, you know, pretty well off and pretty safe here. 
And I, so, so, so one, one trouble with looking at these things is we, we sort of lessen it. And, and in doing that, we have the difficulty then to imagine even a greater horror. You know, we come to things <coughs> as if it was the greatest thing that, that ever happened. You know, 9-11 was a horrible thing, 3,000 people. Um, Rwanda was, um, you know, by various accounts, half a million. So do the math. Uh, how many, that's, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, 10 World Trade Centers a day for two months, mostly by machete and burning people alive. And that didn't even get on our radar screen. Okay. And can we go beyond that? And it's only when you can go beyond that you, become, you begin to come to what happened on Good Friday. This is the greatest horror that God hangs on the cross, that with Jesus' scream, it is the scream that everything has gone horribly wrong, and it was not meant to be this way. This is just all broken apart. So, where's what's going on? If you can keep from sort of curling up into the fetal position when you hear that, you know, what's, what's, what goes next? First, I'm at point four. I want to invite you not to think about yourself, which is almost always our automatic reaction about everything. In the first analysis, what happens here on this cross is God against God. Okay, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani is the opening line from Psalm 22. And we begin to think then about what it means to be abandoned by God, which is the ultimate horror. The ultimate horror is that God is against you, not for you. That's the ultimate horror. And that then is felt in the person of Christ on the cross. I just observe on the side there that, that uh, you know, we haven't always been on the side of the angels in this. That Satan and we repeatedly bring the same temptations to Jesus. It's fascinating to look at how the temptations that Jesus suffered in the wilderness immediately after his baptism. He gets baptized, and the Lord says, you're my son, and you'll go forward as suffering servant. He goes, into the, he, he, he goes into the wilderness. Immediately, he's tempted out of it. He Have some food. Do a miracle. Jump down from the pinnacle of the temple. Wow the folk. Fall down before me and be king. Avoid the cross, you see, and be popular, which could, frankly, be the mantra of our society. Avoid the cross and be popular. And of course, that's exactly then what Jesus uh, suffers. It's amazing. You know, you might ask yourself whether Jesus rolls this temptation around in his mouth in Gethsemane. Isn't there another way? Can this cup pass? This is the way Peter tempted him as well. Surely you'll never be crucified. So what happens in Gethsemane is Jesus rolls this temptation, this satanic, these sat satanic words that came off Peter's tongue are on Jesus' tongue in Gethsemane. He rolls them around and he spits them out and goes to the cross. That's what it means to be tempted in every way as we are. And the temptation doesn't stop. If you're the son of God, come down. We'd gladly follow you if you could come down. If you would come down, we'd gladly take you as the one. Five, it's precisely these temptations to be less than the Father bids 
And I would suggest to you that that is the only sin, that is the first commandment. The only temptation any of you ever really endure is to be less than your Heavenly Father did. It's a temptation Christ endured as well, which is precisely <clears throat> what Jesus rejects. It's still not about you. It's still not about you. It's still about the Father and the Son. It's still not about you. Shall I drink this cup which the Father has given me? It is relentless obedience. And I would suggest to you that those two words are rarely put together in our society. Relentless obedience. One foot in front of the other. Step by inexorable step to the Father's will. The glory, and you remember that's code word for holiness. You know, glory is holiness on earth. That's what it is. That's the definition of it. The glory, the holiness was in the obedience. Fascinating stuff that his holy obedience makes him who knew no sin become sin. <clears throat> this is not a cry of dereliction. It is the cry of the long-expected Messiah, sacrificed in our stead, and thus becoming the end of sacrifice. <coughs> I'm not sure that I would say with Hauerwas it's not a cry of dereliction, but the balance is true. It is the cry of the long-expected Messiah, sacrificed in our stead and thus becoming the end of sacrifice. And there, in that one sentence, you have uh, the ability to deal with all that will be said about the Pope in the next nine days. You may quiz everything that's said about the Pope in the next nine days by asking yourself, is this more sacrifice, or does it confess Christ as the end of sacrifice? You see, you have the resources. I always say to the eighth grade confirmation kids, they really do have the resources at the end of confirmation to make their way through life as a Christian for the rest of their life. There's just a couple of things to remember, and this is one of them. It, will, it, will it be Christ alone? You know, is Christ the end of sacrifice? You know, sort of, sort of grid everything that you hear in the next nine days about the Pope by asking yourself, is Christ the end of sacrifice? And so the love of God takes flesh and blood, human form. And you remember uh, that was the great sort of first creed of the church. This is great comfort in what happens to Jesus. Uh, you know, his great damnation on the cross is for our great good. Philippians 2, uh, 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus' gift, right? He gives you this mind. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Remember we talked about this a few weeks ago, the Father and the Son work it out between themselves. It's first their business and not yours. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what it is. And so you remember, what is it? The next thing. It's called the passion narrative. We're reminded that the word passion is from the Latin to suffer. We're caught up short by the reminder that to love is to suffer, and the suffering is not always sweet. In real love, the stakes are high. It is risking all. And I'm not talking about some sort of bastardized love that we normally 
you know, sort of speak about or read about or see. This is holy, always giving, for the other, even unto death, love incarnate. So you proceed with your own definitions of love, which are consonant, which match that definition. This is not God becoming what God was not. This is brilliant. But rather, here we witness what God had always been for you and not against you, loving you and not hating you, feasting with you, not rejecting you, drawing you near, not pushing you away. Here we see what God has always been. It was this way. It was broken in Eden. The Lord determines for it to happen again. He loves you so. He cares only to draw you back. He knows that you can't do it yourself. Even to consult you about it would ruin it because you could never conceive of what comes next. The cross is not just what happened to him. It is who he is. To understand what that means. This is it's not just sort of, you know, sort of band-aid the situation or hope it works out or wink at it. This is who he is. Who, is. who is God? God is the one who will do anything to have you back. Right? We preach Christ crucified, Paul declares. The God whom we worship is a crucified God. And so then I contrast that with you, with, with how so many in the church have gone wrong and even in our own church body. You know, it was already, you know, a generation ago that Niebuhr gives you this famous statement about optimistic Gnosticism, which means we sort of put a positive spin on everything, and it's all about the good idea of being Christian. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. It's already a couple generations ago now that he makes that criticism of the church. We have that in spades now. In fact, that is the preferred model. It's not the aberration. The preferred model in the church is a mile wide, an inch deep, and what makes you feel good about yourself. That is satanic. It is anti-Christ. It is anti-Christ because it is anti-cross. The only thing that saves you is the flesh and blood of Christ. The only thing that saves you is the location, the presence, the flesh and blood of Christ in you, on you, through you. That's the Lord at work. So now you sort of have a grid for not only just the Pope, but looking at the church in general, in the world, and your own church, and even this place. You should grid us every day by this single criterion. Does what we do bear Christ? Does what, is what we do consistent with the cross of Christ? That's the only question which, well, I was going to say it's the only question you should ask and the only question we should answer. That seems a bit flip, but that about gets it right. The only thing that matters here is whether you get the cross when you come. That's the only thing that matters. Whether you get this solution which the Lord in himself, in the mystery of the Trinity, worked out and delivered to you in the person of Christ. The only thing that matters in this church is if you get that gift. And that really is the only standard by which you ought to judge this church. You know, I've often said, um, you know, you can't leave because we're boring 
or idiots or rude, although we ought not to be. You may only leave if what we teach is false. You may only leave when we no longer deliver word and sacrament. So point six, atonement means when God was choosing whom to damn, good news, he chose himself and not you. Damn is not, that's pure gospel. When the Lord was choosing whom to damn, guess what? It wasn't you. You sit this one out. He'll take care of it himself. Reading the gospel accounts together, it becomes clear that the secret of the cry of dereliction is that the abandonment of, by God is the abandonment to God. Every word can be said two ways, law and gospel way, even the cross. Abandonment by God is abandonment to God. That will become most clear in later words when Jesus says, you know, into your hands I commend myself. It will become most clear later. Had it not gone to the extremity, it would not truly have been finished. He was abandoned by God and abandons himself to God. Fascinating stuff. So the Lord sorts out the horror himself, and he gives you the resulting salvation as gift. And this is the Lord not self-actualizing. This is instead the Lord being utterly obedient to what he was sent for. He was sent to go to the cross. That was his telos, his end point. He was to be the final sacrifice. He was to suffer so you don't have to. Lent goes wrong when you, Jesus suffers so you'll have to suffer. Lent goes right when Jesus suffers so you don't have to. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Okay. I can't get all the way there, um, but let me do two things. <clears throat> you might read the bit by Hauerwas, and you might read the bit by uh, Newhouse. Note that <clears throat> the, the last page, that was uh, set up very well as if it were going to be folded in half in a little booklet. So it goes 107, 104. You've got to read around a little bit. But um, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's sort of inexplicable. I tell you what, I'm going to let you read that, and maybe I'll come back to it. But let's just finish what's on the outline, okay? Just if you'll quickly go to, uh, it's, it's got to end with the gospel. And those readings might not get us all the way there. <coughs> Eight, with this our destiny is not determined by death, but by love and life. This means, congratulations, your life really does have meaning. Your life is not an accident. Your actions do matter. How you engage the world actually is valuable, and the world is worth saving. No matter what you may think about the world and how evilly I've described it, the world, in fact, is worth saving. The people that you see, rich and poor, you know, wise, and unwise are worth saving. The Lord died for them too. And Jesus' destiny is determined by love and life as well. My God still remains my God. Jesus abandons himself to the Father even though he would die at the Father's behest. The point, even in greatest darkness, God was and still is at work for you in Christ Jesus. So all is not lost, all is never lost. That's what it is to be Christian that all is never lost. Here lies hope for the person who, refusing all love, damns himself. 
Will not the person who wishes to be totally alone find beside him in Sheol there's someone who is lonelier still, the son forsaken by the father, who will prevent him from experiencing his self-chosen hell to the end? There is no place the Lord won't go to find you, even hell. And for you who have, in you, this is sort of that, uh, that horrible thing that Lewis says, that the door to hell is locked from the inside. For you who sort of put yourselves in your own hells, there the Lord is with you, prompting you to get out. And for, and, and for, for some people, yours, uh, you know, your voice will be the only one they'll ever hear about the gospel. It won't be mine. So you need to be ready to say this, that Christ became sin and bore every sin. And there's no sin that he didn't die for. And you who are baptized, there's nothing you've done that, that, that he didn't answer for. There's no place you can go where he doesn't exist. Even in death, there the Lord is, in death. Why did he die? Here's a great reason why he died. So you could never say, he's never experienced what I've experienced. He's experienced what you experienced in spades, and that gives you then hope. Resurrection. You bundle it all together, what does it mean? That the Lord intends nothing but good for you. And this, you see, is not a blind optimism. This is a defining hope of the church. That come what may, I'm in God's hands. Well, this is Luther, you know, now we'll wait and see what the Lord will do. Or, you know what, this is brilliant. Um, when I die, I think the Old Testament lesson ought to be three men in the fiery furnace. For you, that's a children's story. But I am, we, we read it once a year at the vigil. And uh, I, I think that this is the, Schlecks will have to be, you know, Schlecks' Old Testament reading is going to be, Oh Lord, you have duped me, and I have been duped. That's his. But I, I want the three men in the fiery furnace, I think. This is, you know, this is, being a pastor makes you strange. So here it is. <clears throat> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God, who we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hands. Isn't that great stuff? You remember how this went. They, they, they sort of wrapped him up in clothes, and they put turbans and belts, and they, they dressed him so they'd burn well. And then when they got there, they sort of sassed the king. He said, seven times hotter, you know. Uh, and they, they sort of say, don't worry, you know, he'll deliver us out of your hand, O king. This is great, though, verse 18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Maybe he'll save us, and maybe he won't, but uh, the Lord is still in control. And you remember how the story ends. Nebuchadnezzar squinting into the fire. Hey, there's four guys walking around in there, and one looks like the Son of Man. Boom, that's it. You're never alone, even in death. There's always two of you. To be baptized means it's impossible for you to be alone. To be at the supper means that you bear Christ in your body. It is impossible for you to be alone. You're never alone. It's a great gift. All right, let's pray. Let's go. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, 
and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you very much. Can I take one? You may.